Good morning, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome to Emmanuel. My name is Timothy Jones. It's my pleasure to be preaching to you today from the Gospel of Matthew, from chapter 5. Uh, we're back in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and um, uh, the teachings of Jesus are intense and uh, provocative and life-giving in the extreme. Uh, if you compare this sermon, which he gives at the beginning of his public ministry, uh, to, to perhaps like a mountain climbing trip, this uh, section that we're going to read today from verses 38 to 48 is something like uh, reaching the summit. It's reaching the top. And uh, what you're going to be given in these verses is an insight into the inner life of God himself. This is what Jesus is going to say. He's going to say, this is what God is like, and therefore, this is what his children look like. So if we're to be children of God, this is going to be shown forth in us. It's, it's uh, intense, intense teaching. It will get hold of your heart, and I want to pray for that right now before we hear the reading of the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we just want to prepare our hearts. We just want to be open before you, Lord God. We want to pray if there's any nervousness, if there's any fear in the room, Lord, I pray that you come by the Holy Spirit and bring peace, Lord. If there's any uh, discomfort, I pray that you bring healing. If there's any anxiety, Lord, I pray that you'd lift it and bring hope in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray that your words would be life to us here this morning as we hear them read. Amen. Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. You must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we start there. Uh, Someone once wrote a critique of C.S. Lewis. Uh, there was a, a man uh, who was a, a doctor of theology who wrote a critique against C.S. Lewis. And um, as part of that critique, he said, uh, it doesn't seem that uh, Professor Lewis cares much for the Sermon on the Mount. And Lewis, in typical style, wrote a rejoinder, wrote in uh, his rejoinder to Dr. Pittenger. He said, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount... If caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. It gets hold of your hearts. 
be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The reason's being given. This is what God's like. And he, and he said over you that I will be your heavenly Father. There's news in there which is very good. Not, you could hear the drivenness because you hear the demand on, on yourself straight away. Be perfect. As your heavenly Father, there's one who has fathered you. There's one who is like this. And you carry a certain family likeness which he's going to draw out to its fullest. That's what's going on. And the sense of perfect here isn't just in terms of moral perfections. It's in terms of reaching completion. It's perfect as a jigsaw puzzle is perfect when all the pieces are in place. It's perfect as a human is when fully put together and constructed by their Lord, their Father, their Creator, their Redeemer. So the sense is very, very demanding, but you must see also it comes with the provision as well. You're not just being told, reach, reach to the skies right now. You have to reach up and you have to touch the clouds, each one on the way up, and then get to the sun. No, it's actually that you are being lifted to this. You're being brought into completion. As it says in the scriptures, the one who starts a good work in you will see it through to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. And if you're a Christian here today, that is the track that you have been set upon. You are being drawn. You're not, you're not just being told to reach as far as you can or to run as far as you can. You're being drawn towards. You're being brought towards a father. So this will happen. I give that as an encouragement as we look at these two increasingly demanding uh, sayings. The first one concerns the mercy of God, his ability to come in and forgive those who have wronged him and how we're supposed to reflect him in that. And then the second section is going to reflect the grace of God. That is lavishing love upon those who hate him and hate us. <laughs> so the first one then, mercy. We have three examples given. Jesus says, you've heard it said, and he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes, an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth. And what's being, what's being spoken of there is what you see in, in the Judaic law, but you also see it in other ancient Near Eastern codes, like the Code of Hammurabi, uh, which is a, a code of law which predates uh, the Old Testament. And in that, you have a strict law of the claw, or lex talionis, that's being spoken about, which says, if someone comes along and takes the, your eye from you, you take your, their eye from them. And it's, it's there to, to spell out strict retributive justice. This is what must happen. If, some, if someone kills your slave, you go and kill their slave. If someone kills your son, you kill their son. It's very tit-for-tat, as we would say. It's just uh, uh, retaliating. And the Old Testament picks up on this. It actually says, here, here you go, this is, uh, this is justice. You don't want to go beyond this. And other codes would have gone beyond that, it's worth noting. That there was, there was a time when people would say, well, uh, you've taken my eye, I'm going to take your eye and I'm going to break your arm. You know, I'm, I'm going to go further than, than just retribution. I'm going to go to vengeance. So this, this code is for uh, cosmopolitan people, people coming from different countries, and how do they get along? Well, retributive justice, that's, that's what's uh, spelt out. But Jesus wants to reconfigure the way that it's interpreted. He's saying, yeah, sure, actually, you could demand your rights. You could demand justice. You could demand the retribution. But God shows mercy. God takes the hit. God takes the hit. He forgives. To forgive anyone, you have to absorb the pain yourself. You have to take the hit that has been dealt out. Uh, so 
the example given is that you, if you're struck on the right cheek, you turn the other cheek. And this, you need to notice, is your right cheek. So if someone struck you on the right cheek, assuming most people are right-handed, they would use the back of the hand. If someone backhands you, which is a huge insult in the culture, it's not very nice now, if someone backhands you around the face, but he's saying, well, they've insulted you, you, you say, okay, and the other one. And, and you take this. This goes radically against uh, the teaching of someone like Aristotle, for example, with his virtue ethics, where the highest virtue is actually guarding your own honour, making sure that you are perceived correctly by the public, that people honour you. They realise, oh, oh, actually, that's a wise man. That's a philosopher. That's someone who knows. So you must guard that honour jealously. If someone impugns it, you go back and tell them, no, do you know who I am? Do you know what I'm worth? What Jesus is saying goes completely against that. He's saying, don't defend yourself. You have a defender. You have one who is speaking in your defense all the time. You have one who, who stands up for you. You don't need to insist on that respect. The second thing that he says is that if uh, someone sues you, he says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This is, relies on a little bit of knowledge about the clothing that he's talking about, but it's basically the tunic is your shirt, and the uh, cloak is kind of an outer garment that in the day you would use to uh, protect you from cold, and in the night it would basically be your blanket. So it's your, it's your covering, it's your modesty, but it's it's your well-being. It's, your, it's literally a security blanket. It's a, and this is no tiny security. This is your safety and your survival. It's like a survival blanket in that respect. Uh, and Jesus is saying, look, if someone comes and sues you for, for your tunic, which you could put up as insurance, say, okay, why not, why not take the lot? Why, why would I try and fight for my own security and my own safety? It's... A hugely vulnerable position to be put in. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And this is something that could be ordered by the Roman soldiers at the time. They, any Roman soldier in a cash-strapped army in a huge operation, an empire, uh, could go up to a citizen, uh, not, not a citizen, a, a, a Jewish person, and say, uh, here, carry my backpack. Take this. Carry it for a mile. Take, take it along. And uh, whatever you're doing, you have to stop doing, and you carry the backpack. And often they would, uh, so I'm told, they would, they would reach near the end of the mile, have you put the backpack down, and then say, oh, see that backpack there? Can you just pick that up and uh, take it for a mile for me? Don't believe we've asked you before. So they would cheat the system, and they would uh, reset the odometer, and then you'd have, to, you'd have to go again. Jesus is saying, volunteer for that. Volunteer for that. Wow, this is literally death to self. Note those things again. Being insulted, being robbed, being wronged, not having your rights. Putting your rights to one side when they're affronted. Being interrupted. And uh, who, who knows any of these better on a day-to-day basis than the mothers amongst us? that actually you're always having someone making claims upon you, so insulting you to your face. <laughs> yeah, it, that might happen. And uh, making claims of your possessions, saying, actually, I need all the stuff that you've got. Can I have that? And, uh, and then, furthermore, interrupting your plans. The very essence of frustration when someone says to you, oh, stop going the way you were going. Just come and go the way I want to go, can you? Is that all right, Mum? Is that all right? 
But it happens in every walk of life. It happens in every walk of life that these things come upon you and they, uh, even as we were hearing last week when we spoke about anger, there's a very natural and a very human reaction to, the, uh, to your plans being desecrated, to your honor being desecrated, to your possessions and your security being put at risk. And what Jesus is saying here is don't defend. This is incredibly hard teaching for his disciples to hear. Remember, Jesus is teaching this with his disciples around him and the crowds listening in. Who are his disciples? Well, let's pick two of them. The first one, Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot is a terrorist. He, he is against the Roman Empire. He, he, he kills Romans as a hobby. This is, this is a, a man who is on the edge and he wants things overthrown. What does he want to do when someone hits him with a backhand on his right cheek? This is not a man who's used to turning the other cheek. This man's going to be disappointed in what he hears, isn't he? He's going to hear something radically different going on. And we've got an ethic being espoused which is completely at odds with the seeking of our needs, the overthrow of power. It's a difficult teaching for people to hear. Jesus tells the story elsewhere of the Good Samaritan. He tells the story of the, the man who uh, is walking on the Jericho to Jerusalem road and he gets attacked by robbers. The robbers come and take all that he has and he's left for dead. And the religious people walk past and they see him there and they say, oh, that's a bit much. And they carry on and they walk past. And eventually it's an enemy, one from Samaria, who walks past, sees him, tends to all he needs, gives everything that he has for this person. And in that story, he tells it in reaction to someone saying, who is my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor, then, then who is that person? And he points and he says, this is the story. And then at the end, he says, which one of these was neighbor to him? You can look at it and you see that the robbers have gone past uh, this, uh, this man and they've said, what's yours is mine. They said, I'm having the coat off your back. That's, that's mine. Interestingly, what the religious do is walk past, they see him and they say, that's too dangerous, I need my security. What's mine is mine. I can't go over there, maybe it's a trap. What's mine is mine. I need to, I need to keep hold of what I've got. Underneath that, there's a fear. God won't provide. It won't happen. You can't trust him to the end. Which is a strange thing for a religious person to be saying, right? The Samaritan walks past, sees him and says, what's mine is yours. Jesus is laying down this ethic, not in one place, but consistently all the way through, saying that that kind of action shows the divine. It shows the godly. It's not merely human. Merely human, as you'll go on to say, is doing good to those who are good to you. Repaying good for good. To, you know, to repay evil for good is devilish. To repay good for good is human. But to repay good for evil is divine. You can, when you see people do it, when you, you, you will have seen this in your life. Hopefully, especially if you're Christians, but in general, you will have seen it. And you will, you will have said, what is that? What's that when someone doesn't hit back? And not only don't they hit back, 
they bring love back. They diffuse. They take the heat down. They show love where hatred's been shown. It's so confusing. It's so hard to make sense of. And it's so attractive. And that's the Lord God. That's how he is. This is what Jesus is building up to. So he's taken them this far down a road. It says of him in 1 Peter 2 verse uh, 23 and 24, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. It's Jesus. When he was reviled, when he was treated as nothing, he's treated as a vile thing. He's treated shamefully. He didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. When his security was impugned, when his safety was put at risk, he didn't threaten. Do you remember that? When he's at his trial, silent. He doesn't say, my rights, my rights. My wife used to work in a secondary school for boys, um, and she would come back with stories every day that just, it just made me so cross. And they, these aren't even dramatic stories. These are just general stories of, of teaching normal, modern kids nowadays. And she said, they're always talking about their rights. They're always saying, you've infringed my human rights. They don't know what their human rights are. They don't know what human rights are grounded in. What are they? You know, but they, but they know full well that you've infringed my rights. I've got rights, you know. Have you? Where'd they come from? How'd that happen? There's no sense of coherence. There's no sense of a God the Father who is the just one who's setting these things. There is a looking in at yourself and working out from there and insisting, I need to state my claim for this ground. I need to defend it. I need to defend my safety because I'm the only one who will do it. It's all wrong. Jesus is upending that. He might be upending it for you this morning. He might be saying to you, you've been trying to hedge your bets. You've been trying to keep safe. You've been saying underneath your breath, he won't look after me. And friends, I'm here to tell you today, if you trust in the Lord with all your heart, he's never going to let you down. I say it as one who's lived it 20 years. It's never let me down. That doesn't mean that every day's been sweetness and light. It doesn't mean that every day's been rosy. But it means that he has never let me down. I've let him down day on day in my little life. Him with his large heart has upheld me. He is your security, he is your safety. He's the one who upholds you. He is your provision. And this is what he's saying here. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But what did he do? What should we do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued entrusting himself, putting himself in trust to to this one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. His taking the hit. His insisting on the infringement of his plans. He said, you know, if there's another way, let this cup pass me by, but not my will, but yours. No, not, not my will, but yours. Your plan takes precedent. And he, he was wronged, he was wounded, his rights were infringed, his safety was infringed, all of these things. 
this is him showing forth the grace of God. He's showing forth the mercy, but now he's ushering us into looking at this second thing, the grace. Mercy, not repaying uh, evil for evil. Grace, the really hard part. The part that you want everyone else to do and God to do, but you'd be rather pleased if it wasn't the thing that was incumbent on you as well. Because <laughs> it it's just seems too hard. It seems too much. It says this, You shall love your neighbor. Aha, he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now this is interesting because he's not quoting from the scripture at this point. Because it doesn't say that. There's two problems with it. And I wonder if you spotted them. He says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. First one is, it misses something. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That means you love them as much as, you, as if they were you. You want the good to happen to them that you wish for yourself. But he's saying, look, the common teaching that's knocking around, the way that our society works, people have kicked that bit into touch and they've replaced it with something as well. They've said, and hate your enemy. You know, you need to keep things safe. You need to keep things safe. Th this comes from scripture. So Leviticus 19 verse 18 says this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, of your own people, yeah? But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord's. And that's the Lord making it an oath at the end. He's saying, I'm signing this. So what's said there? Don't bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, okay? This community needs to work together. It needs to, it needs to function. Don't bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it does have the full, the full quantity there. You love your neighbor as yourself. Remember that question that the teacher of the law asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Remember the answer that he gave. Who was a neighbor to him? The Samaritan. The Samaritans were reviled. They were like, they're viewed like the Nazis of their time or something. If you read that story as the good Nazi, do you know what I mean? Then you're starting to get the kind of shock of the way people would have read it. And he's saying to them, oh yeah, so here's all the respectable people, here's all the loved people, and they do nothing. And then the good Nazi comes along and gets down, tends the wounds. It's, a, it's an unbelievably shaking thing that he says. Now, you have that neighbor as yourself there. You can see that's clearly in the law, that's in the Levitical Code, which is from hundreds of years before. And uh, that would be what they actually knew. So that as your neighbor's being... Uh, that as yourself has been lopped off. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we know that Jesus says the neighbor goes well beyond your little view of neighbor. Uh, and he's going to go further and he's going to say, actually, neighbor goes as far as enemy. Neighbor doesn't just go as far as uh, the, the one who hasn't done you any active harm. But what's interesting is the Old Testament does this as well. So Exodus 23 verse 4 says this. Listen, really interesting. If you meet your enemy's ox, as you do, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Whose ox? Your enemy's ox. If you meet, like, so that's his livelihood. That's, that's his livelihood being decimated somehow. You've got to stop that. You've got to seek the good of your enemy. Verse 5, uh, if you see the donkey of one who hates you, Lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. 
It's there. So the teaching that he's challenging is clearly a very logical, very human, false teaching that was going around at the time. And he's saying, no, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. All wrong. That's not what God's like. And he's going to go further. He's going to say, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. You'll be like your father in heaven because he does this. He makes the sun rise on the evil and good and he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Both of those are good things, by the way. It's not like good things happen and bad things happen to people. No, those are both good things. That means he's going to cause all of their life to flourish, their crops to grow, all of that. He does it for you. He does it for the wicked guy. He does it for everyone. He shows great common grace to everyone. He pours out undeserved favor on people every day. He causes them to love their lives when there's, there's literally no reason why that should be the case. Uh, Paul picks up on this when he's in Lystra in the book of Acts, in uh, Acts 14. People, uh, people see Paul and Barnabas doing the healing and they start trying to worship them as gods because they're, um, they're followers of another religion. And Paul says, no, don't do this. There's, there is a God and he's the one who did good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. There is a, this is what he's like, friends. He is lavishing good things on people indiscriminately all the time. And this is what Jesus is saying. You are to walk in this way because this is what he's like. He is loving to those who throw it back in his face every day, who write things about him, that d- defame his name. Who, who take his name as nothing and treat it as rubbish, he loves them. He puts every breath in their lungs every day, gives them food that they love. He makes their heart glad. He continues to do this. This is the God of heaven. This is what he's doing. So you're therefore told to emulate that. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Has anyone tried doing this? Praying for those who persecute you. And that's not praying imprecatory prayers where you like smash their head against the rocks, Lord. It's not that kind of praying for them. It's the kind of praying that you would wish would be prayed for you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemy as your neighbor. That's where he's going with this. He's taking it all the way to the end. Love your enemy as your neighbor. The 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 neighbor who lives in close proximity to you, who is just causing chaos in the neighborhood, who's hating upon you. Uh, I, I can remember when we, we lived um, on Upper Lewis Road down here, we had, a, we had a flat and next door to us, a squat opened up. And there were like 12 heroin addicts who were just living in there causing chaos all the time. And there were a group of students um, who we knew from this church who were living over the road from us. And... Uh, one of them took it upon herself to go and bake him a cake one day and just took it over. <laughs> and, I don't, you know, I don't know where that story went, but I was just like, yeah, that's kind of the, the thing. And it all, you always look stupid. You know, were you standing with your cake, giving it to the heroin addicts? Eh, you know, and you're not saying, can, can you please stop making noise and fighting each other? No, no, he doesn't. Here's a cake. But this is what's going on. Let's look at a more serious example. This is from... Um, <laughs> This is a story uh, from uh, the, the Dutch evangelist Corrie ten Boom. She says this, 
It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a grey overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed uh, most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favourite mental picture. Maybe because the sea's never far from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean. Gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, collected their wraps. In silence, left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform, a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a huge rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the centre of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He wouldn't remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It couldn't have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you don't forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. I knew it. Not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness isn't an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus 
help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much, you supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. What a wonderful depiction of the reality of this. The neutralizing of enmity. The killing of death that's in Christ Jesus. You see this played out in, uh, in history as well. Extraordinary times in history. And uh, there's the example of President Lincoln who was fighting uh, in the Civil War in the States. And someone criticized him saying, look, we're supposed to be de destroying the South. We're supposed to be destroying the Confederates who have risen up, this, uh, this rebel army. And he says, yes, I destroy my enemies by making them my friends. How do you destroy an enemy? Not by lashing back, not by harming, by taking the enmity out of the thing. God is saying, these image bearers of mine, these ones who walk around who do you harm, they're not really your enemies. Oh, sure, the enmity's real, and you feel this. But you have an enemy who is an enemy of God. There's one enemy who you don't love. There's one enemy who's not loved by God. These people who are in the thrall of that enemy, who are taken away, who are captive, you're to have pity on. You're to have compassion for. Jesus Christ had compassion for you and I to the utmost. It's been demonstrated to us. More than that, it's been poured out for us. It says in Romans 5 verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now we're reconciled, we'll be delivered to the utmost. We'll be rescued. Friends, if you're a Christian here today, you are in receipt of all of this. I'm telling you what you already have. So it's not just a far-off inheritance. This is your birthright. You've been born into this. You've been forgiven to the utmost so that you can forgive like no other so that you can walk in the ways of this Father, so that you can be sons of your Father who's in heaven, who shows promiscuous blessing to those who throw it back in his face all the time. So as we draw near to God in worship, just have this in your mind, that you've been shown mercy and grace. That you've been shown mercy and grace, thoroughly undeserved. As Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, let us then, with confidence, draw near. That's what we're going to do as we sing. We're going to lift our voices, lift our heads to that God who's good. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive, what? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Today, he longs to pour out from his shoreless supply onto you. Grace, mercy, 
fullness. Be perfect as your heavenly Father's perfect. I say it over every Christian here. Be perfect. Receive completion. Receive perfection that you could never dredge out of yourself as a grace gift from him today. Be made whole. Be restored. As we sing the songs of praise to him, I'm trusting that by the Spirit, he's going to be reconstructing things in your life. He's going to be healing hurts. He's going to be allowing you to forgive where you've never been able to forgive because this is what he does. Lord Jesus, we ask for it in your name. Amen.